again to New Hope Fellowship. And as we get into the Word of God for today, I just want to talk a little bit more about what Che was saying, that starting from uh, two weeks from now, we're going to start uh, what we're calling a prayer meeting about an hour and a half at one o'clock before our church. And this prayer meeting, we've been calling it a prayer meeting, prayer ministry, but that would make it seem like that all we're going to do there, that's just the bulk of it, just about prayer. And it's, I think it's really kind of lack, for lack of a better word. And what, let me try and say, little, flesh out a little bit more what is what we're trying to do during those times. The words of Jesus for about true worship was that the true worshipers would join two things together. And that is the spirit of God and the truth of God. And that these two things would come together woven as strength and power into the life of every single true worshiper. And it's these two things that often get unthreaded and separated to the weakness of Christians, where some churches really are so biblical, but sometimes get very rigid as they're just interacting only with the text and not with the living Christ, the living God in the power of a dynamic reality ongoing in the Holy Spirit. And some other churches really just have fantastic experience of God and are constantly hearing the voice of God, and yet when sometimes they can get very often to very some strange, strange areas because they're not anchored and grounded in the unchanging word of God which is eternal and firm beneath our feet. So as a church, we always want to weave these two things together, spirit and truth. And we find those same realities here in the text that was just read to us. I just want to direct you for a second to these words in Peter who's saying the same things as he learned them from Jesus. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And by spiritual, no New Testament writer would have any concept of the modern-day usage of spiritual in kind of the new agey kind of, I'm a spiritual person. When they say spiritual, the only spiritual they know is the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about a spiritual, capital S, sacrifice into the Spirit, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then the very next word is for in Scripture. Every New Testament writer is joining Spirit and Truth as they are all true worshipers of God. And so we want to weave together the unchanging truth of God lived out in dynamic reality of the God who speaks always. The Spirit who is Christ's presence abiding with us. And so that time, about an hour and a half before our services, is the time to get together and say, Father, as we adhere to and walk closely to the Scripture, would you speak these words afresh, anew? Would you apply them directly to the contexts of our individual lives and our lives of the church? As you have spoken in your word eternal, would you speak in a unique, powerful way? We want to hear them afresh. And so that's a t- it's a time for us to wait before the Lord and just to say, Father, what are you saying to us as a church? What are you saying to, to us as individuals? And, and I just have to say one more thing. I, I don't want to get long about this meeting, but it is a pretty important component of what we're doing here as a church. And I need to say this lovingly, carefully. If we want to talk about different weaknesses and strengths, by virtue of, and so let me say it this way, by virtue of you all, which you are incredibly intelligent and well-educated, and that you have striven your entire life to be at the places that you are. And for you, it, many of you, it is extremely difficult to make mistakes. So therefore, it's extremely difficult to be free, spontaneous, in the moment. We are excellent 
Actually, you are, not me. You're excellent at planning things out, at organization. And what we also need to be free in and say that, Father, I may make some mistakes. I, I may not hear from you. Exactly. I'm not infallible. But I believe you are speaking. And I don't want to throttle the hearing of your voice to me today by the fact that I might somehow make a mistake and I might not hear accurately correctly. I want to open in the expectation that you're speaking right now, that you're with me, you're close, you have a word to say for every decision I'm making, for the circumstance I'm in. You're not just mute or saying, just refer to my word. I'm right there and I want to speak to you. So it's a time for us to come together in freedom. We'll make some mistakes, but for us to hear from God in a new and fresh way. And so we invite you all just to come, to pray with us, to wait on the Lord together. And so before we pray for this text uh, today, I want to talk about the other half of that component, which is the Word of God. We try very very hard, uh, diligently at our church, that if we have done a New Testament book or a New Testament passage, we want to make sure that we go to the Old Testament. And to many Christians, many churches, the question is, I don't understand why. Are we not New Covenant, New Testament, post-Christ, therefore Christians? And why do we need still the Old Testament? And I hope you're getting from Peter, I hope you're getting from every New Testament writer. As you can see, you squeeze this New Testament text of 1 Peter and everywhere comes out the Old Testament. Peter is not saying all of a sudden I'm doing something completely different, which in a sense he is. The Old Testament is informing everything that he's saying. So he's constantly quoting to, alluding to, meaning for the words that he say to bear resonance and echoes of the Old Testament as he speaks the new words of God. And so the Old Testament is all over this place. And so he says it in no uncertain terms. The Old Testament, this is one of the most shocking things we read in the first chapter of 1 Peter. The Old Testament was not written primarily for the old uh, first people of God, which is an amazing thing. What we have here in First Peter is saying that the, the prophets, they were already speaking prophetically, and the Old Testament was being written for, spoken for our benefit. They were already being aimed at for you. And so I just want to do one thing before we start on our text, because I'm not, I want to point you to something, because I'm not sure if you'll see it, because we're so used to seeing it. All over in this New Testament passage, there are all these Old Testament he keep, he's building right off the Old Testament. If you just give a cursory reading to this, and you already see, there is a stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And I, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone. That's all that's the Old Testament. And so what I want to do just very briefly is I want to go back to the Old Testament in the Psalms and show you a little bit how this dynamic operates. And so if you will turn with me just a real quick to Psalm 34. Psalms are a favorite of Peter to build off his new writing of God. And so when we spoke about last message that the Old Testament was written for your encouragement. And so it's so that as you look to your future, you can already see in the past how God was faithful to his people. God, the entire Old Testament book is that God is faithful to his people. And now as you have been engrafted and you have become part of the people of God, every single promise, every single deliverance that's given to Old Testament Israel, you can say, you don't ever think, okay, so those are Jewish people and I'm a Christian. Those have now become your people. They have become your people and you've become part of those Old Testament believers, the people of God in the Old Testament. And so these apply to you. And so it is here that we read 
when we just read the verse last week of taste and see that the Lord is good, that you've tasted and see that the Lord is good, it comes from this psalm where I will read for starting from verse 4 in Psalm 34 and see if this is not a word for you written through the psalmist millennia ago for the Old Testament people of God but prophetically already looking aimed at your lives lived out today. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Some of you going through fears today, anxieties. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him lack nothing. And then in verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord delivers them. He delivers them from all their troubles. And let me just say that real quick. If you've read that before, that, that there is the righteous cry out to God, God hears the cry of the righteous always and raises them up and delivers them up out of their present situation of trouble and fear. And if the first thing that is in your mind saying, if that is true, and I believe that it is, of those that are righteous, when the righteous person cries out to God from earth to heaven, that cry rings in your ears and you hear and your attention and your power is being levied for the deliverance of that person's situation. The question is always, am I one of those people? I certainly I don't feel like the righteous. David's always saying, this poor man cried out. This poor, humble person before you cried out. I am not righteous. He, he, he's saying, I'm not righteous in myself. That word righteous might just as well be translated, the righteous cry out, the just, the justified. The one who's been made right by the deliverance and the mercy of God in grace. The person who's been made right with God cries out. The person that is in a relationship. Whenever you see the word righteous in the Old Testament, don't first think of the person that is always doing everything morally correct. The ethical person. Never, It's never meaning that. Whenever the word righteous is spoken in the, in the Old Testament, that's covenant language always. The person that everybody in the covenant is a people of God and is heard by God, is loved by God, is a son of God or daughter of God. You enter into this covenant through a mediator. And once you're in that covenant, you are called the righteous, the saint, by virtue of grace and mercy. And every person here that cries out, God hears as a loving father. And the way that this works arcs from Old Testament into New Testament is that if this is true for the first people of God, who their mediators were Moses and Aaron, how much more us who are mediator, I heart priest, is God in Christ Jesus who is our mediator of our covenant, so that we are righteous in through His blood, have been by His grace and mercy brought into a covenant, so that when we cry out, never, never, never think, I'm not doing spiritually well today, have not had my quiet time, not prayed, is God going to hear my prayers? Because I'm a poor man. I need the virtue of God hearing your voice when you cry out to heaven. It's not dependent upon your current behavior. The righteous who cry out to God and are heard by God are those that have been made righteous, who've been made right 
in right relationship with God in the covenant that has been made in the poured out shed blood of God in Christ Jesus. So if you are going to end that prayer of saying, God, I need deliverance. And if it is your aim, if it's at your plan, that when you end that prayer, you're going to close that prayer and say, not in my behavior, but in Christ Jesus' name, I pray this. That's a covenant prayer. You all know this. And probably needs to be, that understanding needs to be a little bit adjusted in your mind. When it says the prayers of a righteous man are powerful, you, you, most of us are thinking, the one who always lives ethically right, the person who's always having quiet times and, and always, you know, serving heavily in church, that person's prayer gets answered. I don't know about my prayers. Righteous is covenant language is on mercy. You've been given mercy. You're people of God by mercy. The prayers of those that trust in Him are part of His covenant family, have been adopted by grace and the mercy of Jesus, who are dependent upon the blood. These persons, when they cry out, their prayers are powerful, are heard by God. And so this, it is on this huge foundation of the Old Testament where we see God's deliverance for all those who are of His people that we have now saying, these are, this is my history. I'm now a part of the people of God. That The New Testament now stands upon the foundation of the Old Testament, which is why we now turn to First Peter. I want to pray for us, just as we go through this text fairly quickly, a text that we have before us. Would you come before me and would you come before God with me together? And as we say, Father, God, I thank you so much that our mediator, the one that we look to, is one greater than Moses. It's one greater than the entire priesthood of the Old Testament, who they revered, God, who they, re- who they looked at as those that were bringing them closer to God, and yet our mediator is not just one who brings us closer to God, but is himself God. You who have been not, even when we could not draw near to you, you who drew near to us, who was and who is God with us, And Jesus, it is in your mediating power, in your great high priesthood. We give all of our sacrifices through you. We bear all of our prayers to your Father and our Father through you. We pray this prayer, God, for deliverance, God, and our hope and our joy and our strength through you. So we pray all these things in the confidence in which we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to apologize for the the uh, the mix-up that our sermon title today is called Christ Our Identity and Destiny. That's all I want to talk about. I want to talk about who Christ is and in light of Christ our identity and our destiny. And that's what I believe this text is about. So let me give you a quote from C.S. Lewis to orient us and then we'll unfold the scripture. C.S. Lewis says, Our whole destiny seems to lie in the opposite direction. And what he means, it means the opposite direction of the world, the opposite direction of the flesh. Our whole destiny, our whole destiny is going in a different direction. So if you feel your life in friction with the direction of everybody else around you, you need to be comfortable with that. You need to not say that, am I doing something wrong if my entire life seems to be moving in a different direction than every single person around me, the majority of people around me, who do not know God, who, do, who are not believers, as this text is talking about. Which is why I think it's helpful to understand this text when Lewis says our whole destiny seems to lie in the opposite direction. In being as little as possible in ourselves. In acquiring as a fragrance that is not our own but borrowed. 
in becoming clean mirrors filled with an image of a face that is not ours. I love that. I was one time, I don't, I don't know if you guys remember me telling you the Hyundai story. The Hyundai story is that when me and my best friend Han, when we were growing up as young Christians, we ran away. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story again. It was just, we, we wanted, we want to take a break from God, that's what we called it. We want to backslide for a while. We, we thought foolishly, you know, we know God's gonna be around and He'll accept us, but we just need to take a break from you, God. And, and again, I don't get long into it, but we're, we're Jersey kids, so to run away from God, we go to New York City, go to Manhattan. And, you know, we do some stuff which we shouldn't have done. And you know, and and as you, and so you know, you know, by somebody who will never, who will never know, who will never know, what, grace. So we're not even looking for grace; we're running away from grace. Grace chases us into New York City, where we think we're safe. And and this person will never, who never know, just was speaking God's word on the street corner, and there, God turned us around and kept us from whatever going another step down this bad road in darkness we were headed. And so then we come back. We, so we go, we, we go into the front of his, of his, of his little Hyundai at the time, and, and Hyundai XL, and, and we are kneeling at the, at, the, at the floor mats, repenting before God, and rejoicing as we drive back to New Jersey. I don't know why that's funny to me, but um, let me just, I don't know if you remember me telling you this, because I don't think I share about this as much. When I got home that night, so Han dropped me off, it was his car, Han dropped me off, and my parents are asleep. And I'm all alone in my old house in, in Donbrook, New Jersey, and I come up the stairs. And there's a glow inside of me thinking, I'm forgiven. I ran away from God, and God ran after me. He just let me go. What? This is a God of grace and mercy. He chased me, he ha- arrested me, held on to me, and pulled me back to him. And yet I know that in my heart I had made a conscious decision to, and this wasn't just a sins I stumbled into, I had made a conscious decision to disobey God, a conscious rebellion against God. And so I was in, somewhat afraid. Is the grace of God complete? I knew that there was grace, I knew there was mercy, but how full is that grace? How full is the mercy? And so I walk upstairs, and, and, and there's, a, there's a small little uh, landing at the top of our stairs that connects all of our bedrooms, and everybody was asleep, and so I was just all alone. And I don't know why, but I, I don't know. It just I, I want to see if I looked different after my decisions of rebellion. And so I, I, there's, this, there's this hallway mirror that is in the closet. In, in the closet on the door, there's this mirror. And, uh, and so I, I don't know. It was just a strange thing. And so... I, all kinds of things. I was beset by all these very strange thoughts in the middle of the night. It was just dark. It was just the middle of the night. And I was afraid that when I opened that, that door and I, looked in, I was going to look into the mirror, I was going to look in my own face. I was afraid of what I was going to find there. Seriously. I was afraid of the way that my sin had my disfigured spiritually who I was. And so it was with fear and trepidation that I opened that hallway door mirror. And I go to look up at my face. And the first thing that I see is not me. But there in the reflection of that mirror, in the right behind, there is a picture of Jesus that my dad put up on our house right from the, as long as I can remember. And the first thing that I saw as I looked in the mirror was a picture of Jesus' face as he was just saying to me, who it is that do you think that you are ultimately? Who it is do you think that defines you? What do you think that you are and where do you think your destiny is headed? Even if you run away, even if you go away, where do you think that lies the center of your being that is being pulled by a power stronger than gravity? And Jesus there, as he's always been there faithfully every single day, 
And I saw his reflection saying, more important than your own face is my face. I define you. And I'm clarifying the image of the reflection of your life. So that daily, that I can see more of myself in you. And you can see that too. It was a powerful way that Jesus operated in my life and the way that Jesus operates in the lives of every single believer and the way that Jesus has always operated in. You must be attuned to those things which you go to for your identity. What gives you a sense of this is who I am? And it is those people that you identify as the most important people of your life that you begin to see your life in and through their lives. The way that they look at you becomes the way you look at yourself. And it is so absolutely critical that those eyes in which you perceive yourselves, that that is given to no less a being and no less than a person. That when you think of your own self-concept, and the way that somebody looks at me is the way that I look at myself, that must be accorded first to God in Christ Jesus. That's the way that he operates. When you look to the Gospels, when Jesus is in his earthly ministry, it never seemed that he was handing out applications. Kind of, all right, you're going to be a follower of mine and you, know, you can apply. And here, let me, let me give you an application. Fill it out. What can you do? What are your likes, dislikes? And then we'll see what happens. He was never so concerned about the way somebody saw themselves. He was never concerned about the way that the entire world might view them. He knew who that person was and he was ready to say, this is who you are. He was not handing out applications. He was handing out identities. Somebody saw a woman at a well who comes at the sixth hour because she is so ashamed of all of her adulterous ways and everybody knows and the gossip is so thick and when she walks down a corridor or a street, everybody looks upon her and says, you are an adulteress. You are. Just never, might as well be a prostitute. And it is her become way down in her self-concept. Everybody sees her this way. She sees herself this way. Christ meets her at a well, a metaphor of a living water. That's going to be filling her and her thirst. He looks at her and says, that is not the way that I see you. I see you as somebody who's going to become a true worshiper. In five minutes from now, when you put your trust in me, you are going to be one who is joining spirit and truth together. That's, that's who you are. There's a, a demoniac in Gerasim who is living among the graveyard. It's a piteous story. This poor man who has so been ostracized and marginalized by his culture because of the, the spiritual, beset by spiritual, probably emotional, physical problems, being cast away, so he's living among the graveyard. The way that everybody must talk about him and his family. And he sees him and he looks at him and he knows that this is somebody that is not just somebody who's just a marginalized person. I don't see you that way. You are a follower. You're going to be a follower of mine. The tax collector, this short tax collector who's a betrayer of, of his own people, this Nicodemus, that's not the way that Jesus sees him. That's who, as, as if that's who you are, this tax collector and this cheat. And about this evening, you're going to become a friend of God. I'm going to come into your house, Nicodemus. Jesus is constantly handing out identities. And the person who knows this maybe better than anybody else is Peter. This roughneck fisherman. Who would you choose? Who would you choose? <laughs> who would you choose to build your church on top of? Gosh, not this guy. Jesus is not so much interested in Peter saying, well, this is who I am. You know, I'm just a fisherman. This is my, my, my people tell me that I am. 
Jesus doesn't care. He's saying, this is who you are. You're Cephas. You're the rock. Upon you, I'm going to build my church. Who did you think? Who did you think that you are? Jesus is handing out identities. And this identity is firstly and foremost not found upon your personal history, your level of education, your family line, your ethnicity, your citizenship of country. It's not based on any of these things. It is a deeper, more solid foundation upon which he builds your new identity. And it is that solid that all the imagery that is here in this text of a rock, this living stone, is talking about an enduring faithful, center core anchor for your personality. Do you feel this way in your lives daily? Do you? That my ego and my identity sometimes feel so fragile. That if I'm with this person, I start to behave this way. And, and when I'm with, with this situation, I behave this way. And sometimes when I go to work, I'm this way. But then I go to church and then I'm another person. And I, I, my identity seems so fragile. And if somebody says just the wrong thing about me or even looks at me in a contemptuous or disapproving or bad way, that... I can't believe how much of an effect that has on me. My identity is so fragile. And Jesus is saying, you who have come to him, the living stone, saying, come, you've come to him, and there is a stone upon which your identity is based upon, which is not fragile, which is not wavering. It is to anchor you so that you can say, this is who I am. And he defines me when I'm at work. He defines me when I'm in church. He defines me before my parents. He defines me before my, my children, before my husband, my wife, my friends. And this is why that I'm always the same person. Jesus never changes and he never ever goes through identity crisis. He knows exactly who he is. And even when the world was saying, well, okay, who are you? We and you're a false prophet, and, and, and are you this, are you that? And they're screaming at him different things. And Jesus says these great words, it's before, even the Old Testament, before these prophets were, from Moses and Abraham. He says, I am. And you can't hear that, which is why they got so upset. You can't hear that without hearing the Old Testament. When Jesus is saying, before Abraham, before Moses, I am. You can't hear Jesus say that without hearing the Old Testament already. The, the echoes, resonating echoes of God saying, I am that I am. I am. So when Jesus says, I am a living stone, I am. And if you want a secure, eternal, unchanging, faithful, secure place to plant your identity, you must come to the I am, to the stone, and therefore be defined by him and who he, who he is. And Jesus, Peter has already spoken these, this text that is quoted in Acts. He's already spoken about it in Acts. He says, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so we come before God, and we come before God more than any other person. And so let me just read this text in the way that Peter writes it, in the way that he quotes it here. For let me just read from verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him 
will never be put to shame. When it says this, this thing, I, 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 love, I love the imagery of Zion in the city of God. And so there's this cornerstone laid in this place called Zion, in God's city. And what, what defines this Zion? I, I mean, I would like to go there. I'd like to go into the city of God, the place where God is king and he rules over. And it's this cornerstone of Jesus Christ is laid in Zion. And where is Zion? And much of the political difficulties that is beset in our world is Zion is usually defined along either ethnic or political lines. It's a tremendous unrest that we have right now in the, in the Middle East. He defines Zion, the city of God, in this way. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. In other words, there's a precious cornerstone put in Zion, and to those who believe, the believers, this stone is precious. I take that to me when I read these verses together in the way that Peter meant to be read one after another. I take this to me that everywhere that Jesus is precious, that is Zion. That is where the city of God is. So we get foretaste of the city of God, which is heaven. We get it here, wherever place that people gather under Jesus' name and people say that Jesus is precious. And just, we, so just this uh, yesterday morning at, at, uh, for breakfast, uh, Pastor Tori and Pastor Jorge over at, uh, at the church is just actually down the street that way. We got together at El Dorado Diner in, uh, down in the Terratown. And, you know, so we met at 8.30 and just started talking. And, and it's first, from the first moment of our conversation to the end, the dominant topic of our conversation, whatever it is we're talking about, we're talking about Jesus. And the excitement of we're tripping, we're honestly, seriously, I promise you, if you could have been a fly on the wall, our goal and our joy is not to say, all right, well, our church is doing this and our church is, better, well, our church is doing this. We were tripping over our, each other to, to speak. <laughs> you have three pastors and we all want to say something. But it was not the primary thing to say what is so great about our church. The impulse there is we want to say how precious, how much Jesus is. What Jesus is in our lives, in our churches, in our community. A, Jesus is precious. And so Zion is there at El Dorado Diner in Terrytown. Zion is there in your homes when you stop for a moment and you say, is God not good to us? You might just, you might just be stopping around the dinner table. You might look around and just everything that you have and been given and blessed with and your, your, your family. You would say, God is good. Zion, the city of God, the kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is honored as precious. And he's not being stumbled over and saying, what is this thing that is in my way? And he is the way. He is the way for my life, my family's life. I'm walking on his path. And so therefore, the streets on which I'm walking are the streets of Zion. Because more than I'm walking on the path of my career or my fame or my success, I'm walking on the streets of God already here knowing that those roads are already being divined in an architecture that is being more closely aligned with heaven. I'm already beginning the walk eternal here, living forever now. I am already starting my life in Zion, the city of God, because of the precious cornerstone. So this Jesus takes the center place. He's the cornerstone upon which is built, which defines the rest of the entire house. That cornerstone that gets planted and the foundation gets planted on top of that, and everything room is built. And, but that cornerstone already defines the location, where, and how everything else is going to be built. 
And he's saying that the cornerstone of your life is secure because it's not you. Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. You can have no more firm anchor when the world fades away and the markets close down for good. In times of recession, in times of prosperity, in times of joy, in times of great sorrow, in times of light, in times of shadow, there is a cornerstone unchanging which you have built your life upon, he's saying. And this is not only your cornerstone. Jesus is. When we talk about identity, he says, as he is the living stone, as you come to him, you become living stones. You know, if I was at an earlier stage, uh, you know, the reason why actually titles get laid and titles also sometimes, you know, uh, get missed. Title is always the last thing that I give to my sermons because actually it's, it's I can take a great bit of care in in giving it a title. And it, but if I was at an earlier stage, uh, you know, like, like 10, 15 years back, I would have called this sermon, I, I, had some cor- I had some corny names for sermon titles. I would have called this a chip off the old block. Because it's talking about that as he's the living stone, capital S, you see that in the text. You are now living stones. You are defined by him. You are like him. As he's become solid, you also are becoming increasingly solid. Don't worry about your physical wasting away. Don't. Yes, your skin is getting more wrinkled and rough. Your bones are starting to creak. Nothing's being produced as it was before. Bone marrow, blood, nothing is. But even as you are becoming less stable and less solid in your, and less firm in your physical being, day by day, the inner being, you're becoming more solid so that in heaven, it is not a wispy, ethereal existence it is a great solidity, an immense power in which we will have in heaven as we are become solid, as he is solid. But we begin that journey now. We, our identity is hewn from Christ, quarried from Christ. He, when, Jesus is, when God is shaping our life and he's chiseling away at us, sometimes even painfully, to see Jesus emerge from us, that stone of our life already which we being quarried out of is the makeup, is the substance of Christ Jesus. And as that emerges, we become more and more like him. And so you need to give yourself to that process. And so let me take an illustration from music this way. I was listening to, I think, NPR actually, and this uh, expert on, on, uh, on, on piano, and typically, she was, I could tell from her voice, she was a young woman, straight out of probably out of her doctoral thesis, and, so passionate. And she was so passionate about this pianist named Clara Haskell. I'd never heard of her, her before. I, you know, I, I bought her CD afterwards because of this, this, this young woman was so, was so intensely consumed by Clara Haskell. And so she's saying story after story about, how, about, the, about the nature of and what made her so great as a pianist. And so she tells a story which I love. She's saying that there's, 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 there's this uh, very renowned piano scholar and conductor, and he just he knew piano music so completely. It is what he lived and breathed. And so when he put, when you put an L, at the time you put an LP on, he not only knows uh, he, he of course he knows the piece, he knows the author, the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the composer, he knows who it is that's playing by the nature of the playing. You give him a few minutes with a recording, and he knows that's who, I know who that is. And so as the, his wife in the next room heard this amazing piano recording that was coming over the airways on the radio, he, she calls her husband and says, you've got to hear this. And he, he walks in, and he hears this Mozart being played with power and precision. 
And he's instantly, his mind is enjoying it, but as a scholar already begins to analysis, is going into work already, just automatically. He's thinking, all right, so who is this? And so he's going to the great catalog of every single pianist that he knows, the greats. This is one of the greats. He's saying, Horowitz, no. Van Kleinburn, it's not Van Kleinburn. Ashkenazi, no. And then so finally, his wife is saying, you know, you're the great piano scholar. Who is it? He goes, this is so Mozart, so true to the Mozart itself. He says, well, it's not anybody that I know. It, it, it's, it's so pure. It must be Mozart himself, which is impossible. You know, they don't have recording gear at, at Mozart's time. And it was Clara Haskell. And what the scholar was saying is that Clara Haskell had this way of surrendering her life to the notes that are on the page. Oh, that she did not imbue her own personality into her. Every single penis must interpret the piece. But that interpretation was not colored by her own dislikes. I wish Mozart had written it this way. And I think I, I, think I can write it. I think I can improve on Mozart, actually, you know? I mean, I think I... Why did he do that arpeggio? I mean, it ends there. I think I would rather invert it this way, actually. And actually, I don't think I'll finish that there. I think I'll sustain that note. There is some degree of interpret, But... She, rather than imbuing her the force of her own personality, had a wonderful way of surrendering, of being so immersed in the notes that were on that page that she could so intently look so deeply, deeply into the music, through the sheets, that she could come to, ah, that's what the author intended. That's why he wrote this way. I didn't understand. If I was going to force my own personality, I would have never gotten it. Ah, I, sur- I surrendered. I see. That's why he waited until the resolution. He was already building. He's building that tension. He's going to resolve that arc. It's just down the road. I didn't even see that. I understand. And so when she plays, it is true to the intention of Mozart. So that I believe that her goal, I believe her aim, and when she would play a concerto or a recital, is that her desire would be that if Mozart was in the chamber, and he was among the audience, that he would say, yeah, that's right. When I dreamed of that piece, and when I wrote it down on paper so that you could have it, that's what I wanted it to sound like. That's what I wanted it to look like. And then when she was playing that piece, I believe that she would probably play it like, I don't care who hates it. I don't care if things like, you don't understand or you have the wrong interpretation. If Mozart, the author, is pleased, I've done my job. The words that we have here and we've been saying these past few weeks, this is our sheet music. That doesn't change. That's the great thing about classical music. <laughs> it doesn't change. That's why we say classical. It's enduring. But there must be a fresh living interpretation of it. This is our sheet music. It's unchanging. But there must be a depth of surrender in which you come to the words of God so that you would be imbued with God's own meaning and he would be able to write himself these words in and through you so that as you play it out, as you play out this song as we're talking about, that it is true to the author's intention. And so that when somebody hears her playing, says, ah, that's Mozart. So much like Mozart, that's Mozart. That when somebody listens to the music of your life, if I can use that analogy, they say, ah, that's right. That's Christ. It has the fragrance of Jesus. Okay, it looks like you, but it smells like Jesus. There is something emanating from you that is brought in in conformity, not to this world, but in through your surrender, in conformity to the living stone, as you are a living stone, so that your life is becoming like him, 
as you look to him for your identity. And so let me give the second point here, which is he's not our only our identity. Christ is our identity. He is also our destiny. And we're going to be talking more about this next week, and so I will not go too long into this point. But when it says this, that as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you, you also, the living stones. Again, he is defining you. He's not saying, this, let me tell you, you know, who, let me ask you who you think you are. He's saying, this is who you are. You also are a living stone like he is a living stone. And then he continues to go on in verse 9, but you are. Again, there's those words. It's a, it's a declarative thing. saying, this is who you are. You are a chosen people, which not only speaks to our identity, also speaks to our destiny. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received people. You are a chosen people. And that word chosen, whenever you see that, again, that always speaks about destiny. That if you're chosen, you're chosen for something. There is a purpose on your life. You don't live it however you please as if you were just drifting, as if there was not a de- declaration made on your life. You've been chosen for something. God has a purpose for you. That's what chosen means. And so if you can believe that Jesus was chosen, that his life was not just us, a random series of events, or that he just kind of did whatever he want. But there was a divine destiny on the life of Jesus. There is a deliberate mirroring of the way that when he begins in this passage, he says, as you come to him, the living stone, he may be rejected by men, but he was chosen by God. And then he says in verse 9, but you are a chosen people. That's a deliberate parallelism, which Peter is saying. God was chosen. He had a divine destiny preordained on his life. Whatever people saw, he's just a carpenter. He's saying some crazy things. This angry young man. That's the way I see him. The things that he was doing would bear an eternal significance from eternity to eternity. He says, you are like him now also. You also are chosen. He was chosen. You also are chosen. There is a divine destiny in and through Christ that is being put on your life. Never think, I didn't get picked. (laughs) You know, as teams are getting, I didn't get picked. Whoever and however you've been, again, from this text, rejected by men, does not define who you are. Chosen by God is the important thing. Chosen by God, therefore, purposed with a divine destiny that you have. And so in closing, let me speak to something which all of us suffer from. What is the greatest thing, as in my own uh, pastoral analysis of it, what is the thing that keeps us from there? The sense of destiny. When you are called that from this text, you're a chosen people. You're a person of destiny. Then what is that thing that filters in us, that filters that out, that denudes that of all nutrients? It's a text like this that's meant to nourish our sense of when I wake up, I've got a purpose to live. I've got a reason to, to do something, to get up and not let myself just do nothing. I've got to do something. And this is, you are a chosen person. You're a person of God. And what, what is the thing that kind of takes away all the power of that? It's this filter. You never, you never consciously said, I'm going to create this filter. It's something that has been crafted into your life, unfortunately. 
that you can allow to exist or you can dismantle. That you can allow to continue to be a barrier to God's plan and purposes for your life. Or you can allow God to tear down that, that wall. And what that filter is, I would say, is disillusionment. We all, we all face that north of 21, I think. When I was young, yeah, I could believe, I, you know, I, I, I think I had a destiny. I, I, I was going to be great. I was going to be great. Well, I don't think so much about being great anymore. I, shoot, I'm in my 40s. I, I just want to get by. Destiny. I cringe. I, I, destiny? I, I got a destiny? Disillusionment's an awful thing. And if some of you are in the slows of disillusionment, cynicism, I would say get over it, get through it, work past it. Rich Mullins, whom I just, I loved. He was taken when he was in his 30s to be with the Lord. And he's a Christian. If those of you don't know him, Rich Mullins was this Christian artist and singer, songwriter, poet. And he lived his life. Uh, <laughs> he lived his life on an Indian reservation, ministering to Native Americans. His whole life. Never got married. Never had a church. He spent. His, his, he, he spent. He ministered. I, I don't know. If he never had a church, but in other words, he never had a church ministry. But he spent his life living on a reservation, witnessing and sharing the gospel. As a, just a beautiful man of God, and he had this amazing way of that. Whatever he wrote about, he wrote about Jesus, and he just he just came out through his music. I highly commend his music to you. And a good friend of came, friend, good friend of his, who was again north of twenty one, came to him and said, Rich. When I was, you know, you talk, the things you talk about are so beautiful. You know, they, they make my heart ache. When you talk about the glory of God, and he, he, Rich Mullins has this one song, he goes, there's fury in a pheasant's wings. He talks about where he lived in Montana, that there's a glory of God in the plains. And when he hears this simple thing of a pheasant's wings, there's the fury, the glory of God in a pheasant's wings. And he goes, when you talk like that, something inside me just bursts. He goes, I can't touch it. I, ha- I I don't belong into it. It's I, I, there's nothing in my life. It's so empty and not only so purposeless. It's so boring. My life. It's not, I don't have any. I mean, talking about glory, and it's just not in my life. He goes, I'm so disillusioned. I'm so jaded. I'm so tired. I'm so spent. I'm so cynical. I've grown so old. He says. And you know what Rich Mullins said to him? I, I, I will always remember this. Rich Mullins back in and says, he goes, well, you've grown old, he says. And he said, well, you keep on, keep on growing. You grow out of it. You grow out of it. In other words, it's not, it's not, not, not that you grow out of your naive idealism. You grow out of your disillusioned cynicism. Keep Keep growing. Yeah, you, you've grown up and you've experienced more in the world and so you've become, you're no longer naive. Fine. But you keep growing and grow over and grow old enough to grow out of your disillusionment and cynicism. Keep growing. Let me, let me close on this. When, to help you understand about divine destiny as you're a person of destiny. To have a hope of destiny, that you are to continue to grow into a, who you are as a chosen person of God for purposes, a royal priesthood. He's not asking you to do something that you're, to become it. He says, you already are. And we're going to, I mean, in the next, next sermon, in the next sermon, this next week, we're going to get to all the things that you should be doing. But he doesn't say, do all these things and then you become a person of God, you become a chosen person. He says, you're, you're chosen, so therefore live it out. 
But that chosenness comes first. He, he's saying that you are, this is your identity, and this is your destiny. And so let me help you understand that by an illustration, which comes from reality TV. All right, I've, again, I don't have a TV, but I have Hulu. Again, I've never gone to TV, but TV has come to me. <laughs> Darn it, it's just the strangest thing. I try to get away from it. But Hulu is just an amazing thing. So I, I catch up on all my... Uh, you, honestly, you don't really need a DVR anymore, do you? I mean, they, they put it up on their servers, and you just watch whatever you want. Well, anyway, so I've been watching this show called America's Got Talent. Any of you guys seen this? America's Got Talent? Not, have you, none of you guys seen this? All right, good. Don't watch TV. All right, fine. Okay, but anyway, so this is a show called America's Got Talent. And so it, what it is, the, the whole the joy of it, this whole reality TV business, is because it's not these superstars that are performing. It is the common person on the street who's like a cell phone salesman or who works at Circuit City or, or you know, who's, a, who's just a, a teacher, you know, uh, or substitute teacher. Or, and all of a sudden, they get put on this world platform in the stage and they sing, they juggle, they do something. And so this is what they're saying, each one of them. Okay, I may be just a teller at a bank or whatever. I may be just somebody who works at the downstorial staff in, in, at the school. But this is not my life. This is not who I am. I believe... I'm meant for greater things than this. So they, they, they take their shot. They have their moment. And some of them are just awful. Some of them are just so weird. And, you're thinking, and the, the, the word delusion just comes to mind because they think they sing awesome in their own mind. They, they're just the, one of the greatest singers that ever lived. The world's got to hear my talent. I'm denying the world my gift. And so, but when, and then like, they, and they talk like this, they, you know, they, so they'll, they'll ask him, the one, the British version, Simon Cowell is there, so, you know, so what's the dream? And he goes, to be the next Mariah Carey. And so, you know, and so, the, and, the, and they all think, are you, think you're good enough? You got a million, the prize is a million dollars. You, are you worthy of a million dollar, you know, thing? And they're all like, oh, you know it, you know? <laughs> and so then they begin to sing. And the warbling, screeching thing that comes out, and you're thinking like, oh my gosh. And then there are others, which is one of the most beautiful things. The one who won this America's Got Talent. And, uh, so let me just, let me say it. So, the one that, the one that won this guy, Kevin Skinner, his occupation was a, it was a chicken catcher. I loved it. And he comes on there, this guy, just, you know, this southern twang, and he's just like, he's, he's got this poncho on, and like, you know, he's, he's rough, he's scrubbed, you know, and like, he's, he's scruffing stuff, and he's got his backward baseball cap on. And, you know, they're saying, like, you know, you know who, so who, it is, who are you? Who do you think you are? And he goes, well, I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a chicken catcher. You know, you're just thinking, so, okay, so, so, because that's who you are, right? Just subtle, live, live that. And he starts to sing a song, and there's a depth of God-given gift. That's amazing. And at the end, everyone stands up and applause and recognizes, you're not just a chicken catcher. And given a gift, you have a destiny on your life. And this platform, the whole hook, the existential hook that ha- it has on the imagination of America, the imagination of the world, is that you are more than you ever thought that you were. And you are not primarily defined by whatever occupation you may find yourself. There's something greater than that inside of you waiting to be exposed, waiting to be revealed, waiting to be chiseled out of the marble. Let me just say this to all of you who are disillusioned. 
if it has been your dream. If you're dreaming, when you say that, you know, whatever it is I am now, whatever you are now, whatever occupation it is, you're saying, I never thought when I was young this is what I would be. This is not what I wanted to do. I was going to be the next, you know, Willie Mays, or I was going to be the next, like, Michael Jordan, or I was going to be the next, you know, like, Whitney Houston, or what, what, just whatever it is. The goal here and the application is not to get yourself on America's Got Talent. And this thing, this thing is honestly, I, if, if you're thinking that, okay, it's not too late, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to somehow make a go of it, I'm going to live my dream out to be the, the world's the best magician, or I always want to be a dancer, and, and you know, that's what I really, right now, you know, I, com- I work with computers, but I really should have been a dancer, that's what's inside of me, and I've got to live out this dream. If that's, if that's your hope, I can't help you. I can't. But if, as you read this text, and you read, hear the words, those of you believe Jesus is precious. And you say, yeah, Jesus is precious. And I once had a dream that I would live my life for him. I would be like him. People would see Jesus in my life. I would be of use to God and the kingdom. I would do something great for him. I would be more like him. But right now, I feel so far. But this text promises on divine covenant confidence is that you will be. You will be. You have been chosen for it. You have not been chosen to fall off the rails and to not live a full and abundant Christian life. And whatever ways you can't change, whatever way dreams you can't fulfill, what you are promised is to change for godliness and Christ-likeness, to dream God's dreams and to fulfill His purposes for you. That is sworn on God's own oath of I am who I am and I will bring it to be. And those texts that say, what I've begun, I will be sure to complete it in your life. You must grow through your your spiritual disillusionment and say, I want to keep growing. I have been destined to do something great for God. That's the goal. That's the dream. We need to come before the Lord in this because you cannot. If it is God's foresworn ordination, His divine choosing, it is also by God's power that He brings to be, which is the a most amazing thing. Because no matter what state of depletion or emptiness or despair or sorrow, a bedraggled state you come, it is not your power that is going to lift you up. Which is why, let me remake the point again. Come to worship so when we sing those songs, it is a living reminder, Sunday by Sunday, that's right, strength will come, <laughs> strength will rise. I will wait upon the Lord, strength will come. He will lift me up, He will do it. I believe that upon His choosing, His sovereign word. I want to close us in prayer. I want to direct your attention to the Lord. I want to bring your focus to Jesus. I want to ask you if the definition of a believer, and according to First Peter, is one who considers Jesus precious. That's just so closely here. And so inside, if you're saying, even though I fail, even though I falter, yeah, sometimes I drift, Father, but Jesus is precious to me. I didn't create that. At one point, he wasn't precious. I could care less. But what I know is, yeah, I don't even know when it happened, but I know that it happened. 
Jesus has become precious to me. I'm sorry, I failed. He is precious to me. I want to become more like Him. I want to live my life for Him. I want to be empowered to stand for Him. He's precious. He's my goal. He's my dream. Well, then you are a chosen priesthood. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. A holy nation. You are belonging to God. He's carved out a divine purpose for you. He has done it. Out of the rock of this world, He has by divine power carved a path for you toward Christ-likeness, toward Christ-usefulness, to Christ-blessedness, to be mercied, to be given mercy in Jesus. Grace is this word, Father, that we love and use so often in our church because we wouldn't get beyond five steps without it. Not by our behavior or our faltering unfaithful ways, but by the faithfulness of your ways, the abundant grace where we say even where sin is, well, grace abounds all the more. This unstoppable, irresistible, eternal grace. Jesus, would you give this grace to everyone here, all of our brothers and our sisters, to dream new dreams, maybe let go of some old ones, and say that, Jesus, my goal and my dream is you. And I've let that light of this, what I want to do for you, go really dim. And I realize that I'm not the keeper of the flame of the purpose of God in my life. You are the one that keeps that fire burning, that purpose that keeps driving. And you are the one that even if it's a low ember, who will come and not snuff it out, but who will breathe divine breath unto the embers of my life that say that Jesus is precious until it burns. It's a conflagration, God, a burning fire inside. Jesus, would you do it because of your mercy that you've given to me, because of who you are in Christ? because of the cross. I love you, Lord. And we say these things together in Christ Jesus' covenant name. Amen.